We tend to think that ours is the first global age, in which disparate societies and peoples can connect via technological advances such as the internet or the jet airliner. Not only is this a naive notion, it's also completely false. While the world map has become increasingly smaller and more well-defined since the age of exploration, there were times well before our own when the world was just as connected as we are now, if not more so. One such example of this can be seen in the cultures and civilizations that developed around the Mediterranean Sea in antiquity. Far from being isolated, mono-ethnic societies, they engaged in extensive trade with one another, exchanging goods as well as ideas in a never-ending flow that stretched from the Levant in the Middle East to the Strait of Gibraltar in the West and even beyond. In some rare cases, such interactions led to the development of hybrid cultures in which one influenced the other and vice versa, to create something quality unique. Such was the case with the subject of today's episode, a mighty, albeit nearly forgotten, civilization that developed in what's now Spain and parts of Portugal. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and let's hop aboard an ancient trade ship bound for the city of Gadir, now Cadiz, in southwestern Spain, to discover the places and people of the mythic land of Tartessos, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Since antiquity, the story of Atlantis has captivated the public's imagination. Ever since its first known mention in Plato's dialogue, Timaeus and Critias, it has conjured up images of a highly advanced civilization somewhere, quote, beyond the pillars of Heracles, unquote, what's now the Strait of Gibraltar, and what we know today as the Atlantic Ocean. This society was said to exist some 10,000 years ago, and was so advanced that it influenced ancient Greek and Egyptian societies, as well as countless others throughout Europe, Africa, and even as far as the interior of Asia. But at some point, they became far too powerful for their own good, and, as Plato puts it, quote, in a single day and night of misfortune, it sank beneath the waves. Unquote. In the centuries since Timaeus and Critias first appeared, the story of Atlantis has been passed off as pure myth, but what if the renowned Greek philosopher had actually been onto something? His location of the fabled lost continent perhaps offers a clue for his inspiration. At that time, the Greeks were quite knowledgeable in regards to geographical matters, having explored and charted much of southern Europe and North Africa, as well as both the Near and Middle East. Lying just beyond the pillars of Heracles at the time was a large port city known as Gadir. Located at the mouth of the Guadalquivir River in present-day Spain, the city was known to the Greeks for its vast wealth and sophistication. With monumental architecture adorned with gold, silver, and even pearls, it truly must have been an impressive sight. Ruled over by a king, the most famous of which was a man named Argonthonios, it was ultimately destroyed due to a cataclysm that historians now believe was a massive earthquake and successive tsunami. Following the disaster, the city lay buried in silt, sand, and mud, and was never again re-inhabited in ancient times. Could such accounts have formed the basis for Plato's concept of Atlantis? They very well could have, but what neither Plato nor the ancients realized until later was that Gadir was merely one part of an even greater and larger civilization, one whose mixed heritage was, for all intents and purposes, unique even then. Sure, the societies and peoples in and around the Mediterranean interacted closely with one another due to trade and commerce, with ethnic enclaves living in cosmopolitan cities of the time as traders and merchants, but few of these places could boast a hybrid culture that ultimately forged its own special identity. The question, however, remains, just who were the disparate peoples who created this diverse culture? To answer it, we'll first have to venture far from Spain to the opposite side of the Mediterranean along the Levantine coast, particularly what's now Lebanon, Syria, and northern Israel. Here in the fabled lands mentioned in the Bible, a Semitic people rose to prominence sometime in or around 1500 BC. Noting the dry, arid, largely desert landscape they called home, they soon realized that they had to seek their fortunes elsewhere. 
Thus they turned to the sea. As their homeland was rich in cedar forests at the time, they used this light yet sturdy wood to fashion ships which would carry them great distances to more suitable, fertile conditions. In the process, they became skilled navigators and soon grew rich from trade. With their newly acquired wealth, they built magnificent cities in their Levantine homeland, such as Byblos, Sidon, and Tyre, or Tyre, among others, and would go on to establish the largest trading empire the world had yet seen. I'm talking, of course, about the mighty Phoenicians, and they'd come to inhabit several islands throughout the Mediterranean, as well as coastal communities on both the European and African mainlands, though never straying too far from the sea. One such place they landed was Iberia, what's now Spain and Portugal, sometime after 800 BC. It's important to note that, by the time the Phoenicians arrived in this distant, exotic place in the early 9th century BC, the region had already long been inhabited. Indigenous Basques, as well as Iberians, and even Celts, known in such parts as Celtiberians, had called southern Spain home for hundreds, and in some cases thousands of years prior to contact with the Phoenicians. In that time, these cultures had developed their own distinct art, craftsmanship, and customs. They carved sculptures out of local stone, and worked gold, silver, and copper into drinking vessels, shields, and even spear tips. They each worshipped their own pantheons of gods and lived tribalistic lifestyles in which a mixture of hunter-gathering and crop cultivation were key. The concept of, of cities was still unknown to them, though they'd likely heard of those built by the Etruscans, Greeks, and Egyptians in Italy and the eastern Mediterranean, respectively. At most, they lived in scattered villages and communities, largely atop hills or mountains, so as to be safely isolated from enemy attacks. It was in such a state that the Phoenicians found the various Iberians when the former set up a way station in the southern part of the latter's country, in or around 800 BC. But what was initially meant to be just another stop in a vast trade network that stretched from the Levant to as far as Britain soon turned into something more. But what exactly had changed? As previously stated, the Iberians fashioned gold, silver, copper, and even tin into both luxury and practical goods. As the Phoenicians soon discovered, such minerals abounded in Iberia, and these seafarers decided to capitalize on it. That little way station on the southwestern edge of Spain would, within a relatively short time, blossom into the city of Gadir. With its strategic location where the Guadalquivir River spills out into the Atlantic Ocean, the Phoenicians not only set up a permanent presence there, but also used the river to navigate further into the interior of Iberia. Iberia. Over the ensuing two and a half to three centuries, what historians and archaeologists of an earlier period refer to as the Orientalization of Iberia took place, forming the blended, distinct Tartessic culture, a veritable hybrid of both Iberian and Phoenician concepts that forged an entirely new identity in ancient Europe. The Iberians introduced their metalworking techniques to their new overlords. In return, the Semitic sailors offered their superior boat-building skills, as well as their writing system. Fun fact, the Phoenician alphabet, which is comprised of some 22 letters, is considered among the world's first and oldest, and would go on to be adopted by the Greeks as the basis for their own alphabet. To date, some 97 inscriptions in a Tartessic language, an extinct blended Paleo-Hispanic and Semitic tongue, have survived to the present, carved into temple walls or else funerary monuments such as stelas in various necropolises that have been unearthed. The Phoenicians also introduced their pantheon of gods to the Iberians, most notably the worship of the West Semitic goddess Astarte, known as Ishtar to East Semitic peoples such as the Babylonians and Assyrians. The goddess of fertility, hunting, war, and love-slash-sex, she's frequently depicted on bronze appliques or in stone carvings, which have been unearthed throughout southern and southwestern Spain. Temples and religious sites, such as those at Huelva and El Carambolo, are built in typical Eastern or Oriental quote-unquote fashion, that is, with a grand entrance, sanctuary, and a central altar, and are often dedicated to her or other Semitic entities, such as Melkart, the lord of the underworld, and the awesome Baal, the god of thunder. 
Having been an offshoot of sorts of Phoenician civilization, it wasn't long before Tartessos became incorporated into their vast trading empire, growing rich through trade with such places as Greece, Egypt, and even the interior of the European continent. A rich blend of goods and artifacts from each of these disparate lands, such as Greek pottery, Egyptian carvings, and Celtic metalwork, have been unearthed in particularly wealthy Tartessic tombs and temples. But the people of Tartessos weren't simply importing practical and luxury goods from elsewhere. Naturally, they had to bring something to the proverbial table. As southern Spain was rich in gold, silver, copper, and tin, it was these precious metals, among other goods, such as dried fish, a regional delicacy, intricate yet durable earthenware, and even olive oil that they exported to those selfsame places. For a time, some two and a half to three centuries to be precise, Tartessos thrived, and its development and greatness seemed to show no signs of stopping. But as history proves time and again, this heady upward spiral would eventually come crashing down. At the height of its power in both the western Mediterranean as well as Spain's Atlantic coast, a cataclysm of epic proportions took place that would single-handedly wipe this mighty civilization from the map, never to return. Said cataclysm was a natural phenomenon, likely a large earthquake in the region that not only leveled its great cities, but buried them in silt, sand, and mud after an ensuing tsunami flooded the coastal areas. We know this because several Greek and later Roman historic sources, such as those of Herodotus, Strabo, and Pliny the Elder, corroborated. It was also an account that clearly made its rounds in antiquity, as elements of it clearly found their way into Plato's cautionary tale of Atlantis, in Timaeus and Critias. It's important to note, however, that Tartessic culture didn't disappear overnight, but slowly and ultimately became absorbed, over time, into other cultures and societies that overtook ancient Iberia. Those who were fortunate enough to survive this natural calamity fled further inland, where they established farming and agricultural communities while still maintaining their uniquely Tartessic customs and ideas. Several small-scale altars and temples have been found far inland in the former jurisdiction of Tartessos, and are believed to be the last remaining vestiges of this once great society. But as what's now Spain in particular was overrun by Carthage, itself an offshoot of the Phoenicians in what's now Tunisia, and later Rome, Tartessic culture was eventually wiped out in favor of those of the conquerors. For centuries, all that would survive of this great civilization were the accounts of Greek and Roman historians, who spoke of this ancient power with a mixture of awe and even envy, for they truly were one of the richest power players in the ancient world. It wouldn't be until the late 19th and early 20th centuries that glimpses into this storied past would be unearthed in several archaeological excavations led by British, German, and of course, Spanish archaeologists. In the years since its rediscovery, Tartessos has become an important and proud part of Spain's long and vast history, for it links them to an ancient, almost mythic golden age like that of their Italian, Greek, Egyptian, and Middle Eastern counterparts. But with such an addition to an already rich identity comes a crisis of sorts. Throughout much of the 20th century, Spain was embroiled in civil war and political strife. When fascism came to power in the 1930s, the government under dictator Francisco Franco hijacked these discoveries as proof of Spanish, i.e. Indo-European, superiority, to which all other peoples in the country, such as Basques, Jews, Andalusians, and others were quote-unquote foreign entities that needed to be expelled or else wiped out. Little did he know at the time that Oriental or Semitic quote-unquote lineage intrinsically linked with Tartessos. It just goes to show the enduring importance and significance of the past and how it could be distorted for one's personal gain. Such ideas, to say nothing of revisionist history, are dangerous and should by no means be believed or promoted, as it always leads to devastating consequences, namely in the form of uprooting the lives of ordinary, everyday people. That being said, let's not end our Tartessos story on a low note. 
Indeed, since the end of fascism in Spain, the various Tartessic archaeological sites have become a sense of pride for all Spaniards, regardless of their Indo-European or quote-unquote foreignness. It's also proof that the ancient societies and civilizations we know and study today weren't isolated and insular as we may have originally been led to believe. There's much talk and demand of and for diversity in our contemporary times, but these ideas are nothing new. One need only look to Tartessos as proof of that. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this trip to sunny, albeit ancient, Spain with me. There are so many archaeological mysteries in the world, and perhaps countless more just waiting to be discovered. If you love learning about history and would like to support this podcast to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. To do so, just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing help as well, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Join me again next week for a look at a fascinating, at first seemingly misplaced, ethnic enclave in the middle of European Russia, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.